This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. In the aftermath of the midterm elections, political experts and the media are once again trying to divine the meaning of the choices that Latino voters made at the ballot box. Eli Valentin, contributing columnist at Gotham Gazette and frequent political analyst for Univision New York, says that much of that analysis misses the mark and that there are some specific and persistent myths about Latino voters that need debunking. As a former pastor and an adjunct lecturer at Union Theological Seminary, Valentin thinks the role of religious belief also too often gets overlooked, and that the development of what he calls political pastoral theological agendas might help in getting many more voters, not just Latinos, to think about the choices they make at the polls. My conversation with Eli Valentin is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Eli Valentin, thanks for being at the Commonweal Podcast today. Thank you. So I want to get right into it, I guess. Why is it that much of the media and maybe also the political class in general assumes that Latinos gravitate toward the Democratic Party? Research from Pew and elsewhere tends to reveal that Latinos don't necessarily fit neatly into our two-party system, mainly because voters just haven't forged strong ties with either Democrats or Republicans. So how does this square with your own work in this area? Like, what's responsible for the disconnect? And why, in your opinion, is this something that seems to have gotten lost in all the news, both in the run-up to and since the midterms? Well, part of it, I think it's, it's a lack of understanding of who Latinos are. And the fact is that we're not a monolith. We come from different countries in Latin America, and that by implication means nuances in language, culture, and even political behavior as we see here in the U.S. So the idea of the Latino, it should automatically imply diversity and nuances that I think is often missed. When we speak of, for instance, the Latino vote, is it not a singular right way of looking at this, but is looking at the multiplicity of the Latino reality. So just picking up on that, Eli, generally progressives in the Democratic Party tend to base their appeals to Latino voters on issues of identity and immigration and Republicans on economic issues and conservative notions about family and hard work. And again, this gets to your point about trying to avoid thinking of the Latino voting population as monolith. But what assumptions does this kind of binary analysis reveal and what other considerations might it overlook? How, for example, might the diversity of the population from nation of origin and national heritage, urban versus rural, religious versus non-religious, how might this all complicate the thinking? Yeah, it's interesting that despite the variety that exists among Latinos, but when it comes to issues that are important to us, there seems to be an overlap. Survey research shows that Latinos tend to list economic matters um, as its number one issue. Right. The idea that immigration is the only thing that Latinos care about is another myth that has to be debunked. And by the way, newer immigrant communities are not concerned about immigration as much as they are concerned about economic matters. When we look at broader economic status of Latinos, I think we can understand why that is the case. Latinos tend to be at In terms of the economic ladder, we're at the bottom, for the most part, with African-Americans. 
So it's clear why that would be the case. So for the most part, economic concerns are shared by Latinos more broadly. Eli, maybe you could talk about the specific role or influence of religion when it comes to Latino voters. Are there differences among Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, non-religious Latino voters? This, Dominic, really gets me going, largely because it is unexplored among political scientists and even political operatives. Many do not realize how religiosity impacts how Latinos vote. And we see this especially within a certain sector of Latino voters, both well, Latino Catholics and Latino evangelicals. I lump in Latino Pentecostals within the evangelicals just because sociologically that's what is, is done for the most part. But I'll say a little bit about the Latino evangelical component because I believe that what's happening in Florida, perhaps to a lesser extent in southwest Texas, which is much more Catholic. But what we do see in Florida, we're seeing Latino evangelical trend Republican. It's been happening for the last 30 years. And I've explored this and I got a lot of heat for it. But one of the things I have said is that Latino evangelicalism was birthed by white evangelicals. And so evangelization among Latinos is really connected to colonization. And we see a connection, a deep connection, more so than what people realize between Latino evangelicals and its white evangelical parent. And what we're seeing is more and more a desire to not cut that umbilical cord. So in many ways, the Latino evangelical tradition mirrors the white evangelical tradition, which I, I argue has never let go of certain Christian nationalist sensibilities. Interestingly enough, in Texas, one of the very few political scientists that's exploring this, his name is Dr. Mark Jones. He's at the Baker Institute at Rice University. And what his research shows is that Latino evangelicals support Donald Trump and they were supporting Governor Abbott in larger numbers than white evangelicals. We're talking about 71% of Latino evangelicals view Donald Trump favorably, which is three points higher than white evangelicals. We are seeing that play out, especially in Florida, more so again, but we are seeing Latinos voting largely through the influence of a certain religious ideology. And again, a lot of political scientists miss this. They tend to look at economic factors, right? They tend to look at other policy issues, but very few are noticing that this shift that is happening in some places, not all, but in some places is largely due to a certain theological influence. By the way, Latino Catholics, for the most part, remain more faithful to Democratic candidates and certain policy positions. Like they're much more, they view abortion, for instance, much more favorably than Latino evangelical. And the list goes on and on. But even Latino Catholic numbers, when we look at Democrat versus Republican, for Democrats, it has decreased. I mean, there's an average of about 54% of Latino Catholics that favor more generically, right, Democratic candidates. That has gone down by about seven to eight points 
over the last 15 years. So we are seeing some shifts happening. I call it a new type of, of ecumenism, where Latino Catholics and Latino evangelicals seem to be merging when it comes to certain policy positions and political preferences. So something to really explore. I want to shift a little bit too from maybe thinking of the voters as a voting bloc. I want to maybe talk a little bit about the elected officials and the people running for office. So one of the things I think that emerged from the most these midterms is data showing that Latinos, mostly Democrats, have made significant inroads in state legislatures across America and places like Vermont and Iowa and elsewhere. And I guess the data is saying there's probably two things explaining this. The increasing number of Latinos running for office all around the U.S. and the party affiliation of the victors, which are mostly Democrat, in spite of the anecdotal reports and assumptions about Latinos gravitating toward Republicans. So I guess this is all a way of kind of trying to ask, how should we interpret this? I mean, what does this suggest about the present and the future of Latino political influence? Yeah, I think the first thing, it points to the growing nature of the Latino community or communities in the U.S. So, and we tend to be a, a younger demographic. There's one research study that shows that every 30 seconds, there's a Latino or Latina turning 18, right, years of age. And there will be political implication from that reality. There's 12 million Latinos that are eligible to vote that have not registered to vote. We are about over 26 million Latinos that are registered right now in the entire country. And yeah, over 26 million. So with an additional 12 million that can register to vote, that are eligible to vote, that presents an interesting a political reality. It adds right, something of what can be in years to come. But again, the growing nature of Latino communities will mean that we will have more Latino, Latina candidates. I think both parties are realizing that you cannot win future elections, and even the current ones, without tapping into the Latino vote. And I think that has forced political parties to invest in Latino candidates. There is a clamor for proper political representation. And sometimes it is not given by the parties. And we, as Latinos, have essentially have had to force ourselves to the table. We are here. And that is partly what is happening. So now when the new Congress takes their oath of office, we will have more Latinos in Congress than at any other point in the history of this country. Yeah. And I think too, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is also outside of expected or familiar areas we know as sort of concentration of Latino communities, obviously Southern California, Southern Texas, Florida, but nationally, right? Yeah, absolutely. Even in areas or states that we wouldn't think would have Latino political candidates, right? Like North Carolina, but there's a growing Latino community in North Carolina and in other Southern states, even Western states. And we're seeing places or states where we normally would not have thought of 10 years ago having a Latino run for office. It is happening. So it is mostly concentrated in the bigger states that have tended to have large Latino communities. But interestingly enough, it is also happening in Southern states and even in Iowa. There's some Latino political rep representations. It's, 
But again, and it points to the growth of the Latino community, which now, interestingly enough, and the last census in 2020 has shown this, we are seeing a growth in Latino communities in a lot of Western and Southern states. So Latinos are not just now found in New York, Florida, right? Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania also, there's a growing Latino community. Texas and California, Nevada, now we're just seeing an expansion of Latinos uh, all over the states. Yeah. Let's pick up on Nevada specifically because, you know, what, uh, that was the state where there was one of the most watched elections for, for U.S. Senate, where Catherine Cortez Masto beat her Republican opponent by a small margin. And she and her team credit their slim victory to outreach to Latinos, Spanish language ads and so forth, who do account for 30 percent of Nevada's population. Do you think that this really, this effort did make the difference there? Might there have been other things in play? I guess some folks have wondered, like, whether it's really more of a reflection of the state's powerful labor unions, or were there other factors? Yeah. I'll put on my electoral political hat. I served as a political operative for, for some time. I always used to tell candidates, when victories come, there's typically not just one thing. It takes a number of things. I think that's what I see in Nevada. Yes. The labor uh, movement in Nevada is strong and politically strong. They're probably, I think, one of the few states that really have an organized labor movement that leads to political victories, right? So I think, yes, there's definitely that component. Did Latinos contribute to that? Absolutely. Exit polling is not entirely accurate, especially when it comes to Latinos. They tend to undersample, right? So the exit polling, there was an exit polling led by CNN. They uh, interviewed 349 voters coming out of the polls, which is a decent sample size. So those that were interviewed, 62% voted for the Democratic candidate, Cortez Masto. And by the way, 21% of the entire electorate in Nevada is Latino and growing. Right. So within the next few years, it'll be a quarter of the entire state. That is significant, especially when you look at victories that come in with smaller margins. Right. Yes. Latinos played a key role there. It wasn't the only ingredient for her victory, but it was definitely a key factor when we look at that overall voting patterns. Yeah. We'll be back in a minute with more of my conversation with Eli Valentine. Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. So I'm wondering if there were other races you paid attention to this time around. I guess a lot of people were also looking at what happened in Los Angeles with the mayoral race with Karen Bass uh, winning over Rick Caruso, but also the sheriff's race, which got, to me, was unexpectedly national attention, where Robert Luna won over Alex Villanueva. So you could talk about those if you have something to say. Were there other races that you thought were notable this time around? Yeah, I was looking at Florida. I'm just really interested in what's happening down there. Because Florida does present an anomaly 
And the question is, why do we find a big chunk of Latino voters, specifically in this case, trending Republican? And we don't see this in New York, for instance, not to that extent. We don't see it in Pennsylvania. We don't see it in Illinois. We don't see it in California, but we are seeing it in Florida. So we're still digging through the numbers because we have to wait till the election is certified and then the, the voter files released. But what we do see so far, the exit polling, is that Latinos in Florida are still trending Republican in the Miami-Dade area. So a lot of analysts were like, wow, I, we can't believe how well DeSantis did as governor in, the, in Miami-Dade, where 69% of voters there are Democrats and 71% are Latinos. But we already saw this in 2020. Trump received 61% of that vote, of the Latino vote in Miami-Dade. And we're seeing now DeSantis keep those numbers. I was looking at Southwest Texas, but again, Southwest Texas it went, went back to the Democratic side in larger numbers. But I think we do need to pay attention to what's happening in Florida. And I believe there's one political party that is looking at the Latino vote as essential for their future prospects. It's the Republican Party. The engagement is limited to really disinformation and conspiracy theories that Democrats are socialists, that they want to introduce a socialism as an economic system in the, in, in the United States. And so the, that the engagement that we see is not a, a genuine, authentic engagement to understand the concerns of Latinos. It is spewing out a message that be careful with these guys and gals because this is what they want to introduce. The sad thing is that many Latinos are falling for that type of information that's being received. And there's really no counter-narrative that's being presented. And not just by the Democratic Party, but by, by other key influencers, right? Religious leaders should stand up and say, wait a second, this is not the reality. Let's look at the bigger picture, the real picture here. Religious leaders, educational leaders, we're just seeing a certain narrative that is dominating and there's nothing to counteract that. And so that's why we see DeSantis win. We also see Marco Rubio win with large numbers. So I don't consider Florida a swing state anymore. Right. I think we can speak of Florida as a red state now. And interestingly enough, it is because of the Latino vote. Yeah. I wonder if we could look at a different state now, and specifically New York and a specific U.S. representative by the name of Richie Torres, whose district covers most of the South Bronx here in New York. You've written about Representative Torres before, highlighting what you call his pragmatic progressivism. And I think we know what you're talking about, but I want maybe to hear it from you. Maybe you could explain what you mean by this and why you think it's important in terms not only of Torres's position as a Latino elected official, but also of his constituency. Yeah. So I wrote that piece for Gotham Gazette, which is a New York-based news platform focusing on politics and policy. And so obviously there's a really political audience there, right, that's tuned to the political context in New York. I say that because if it would have been perperhaps a common wheel, I, I would have used Naborian 
pragmatism <laughs> as, as the term because I think I was trying to be Naborian there. Reinhold Niebuhr, who, who at least in, in the middle or latter part of his career, really espoused the type of political philosophy that I, that I identified Richie Torres with. So there is a, I think, a fierce debate happening, and not just in New York, interestingly enough, but across the country, within the Democratic Party. It is a battle between the progressive left and those that are more moderate, or at least that's how they've been termed. So I was trying to place Richie Torres within that debate that I think in many ways is being spearheaded by what's happening in New York, right? So this wider Democratic intra-party fighting, I think it starts with Bernie Sanders. But in New York, we are seeing it play out. It's much more fierce, right? We, it's almost palpable. So what I see Richie Torres, or what I've seen him and always have, I think, by the way, he's really talented. He's a young man with so much potential, and he just has a great grasp of policy and an uncanny ability to articulate, right, policy and also nuance the language depending on who he's speaking to, right? So with the Bronx constituency, he's able to articulate his positions in a way that Juana and Juanita understand, right, in the South Bronx, but he's also able to articulate this in close circles with other political leaders, right? But what I see is a certain angle that he's taking, which I have called pragmatic progressivism. Pragmatic, not in, I, I don't refer to the philosophical school of thought of pragmatism, but what I mean by pragmatic is that it is a propensity to work with competing sides while holding on to your values. But seeing the necessity to, one, engage in conversation with those that are on perhaps the opposite side of the spectrum, ideological spectrum, or, or policy position, but is also being willing to negotiate a middle way, not necessarily the triangulation right. that we saw with like uh, Clinton, Clinton or whatever, right? Mm -hmm which was the brainchild of his then-political consultant, Dick Morris. So I'm not necessarily speaking about triangulation, but Richie Torres is a progressive. I would consider him a progressive. The pragmatic element takes into account the fact that a progressive will not always get what she or he wants because governing entails negotiating. It entails reaching a middle ground so, for instance, in the New York City Council, there was a policing bill that he presented, and there was a competing policing bill that was perhaps more progressive than his. His was pretty progressive, but he had to negotiate with the then mayoral administration of Bill de Blasio, and progressives were, the progressive left was not entirely happy, but he told them, I, this can only pass if we reach a middle ground. That's the pragmatic element. It is just this understanding that we will not always get what we want, but that, doesn't, that does not mean that we give up our progressive values. And I think that's largely missing within our political discourse, but also within political leadership. 
And I'll use one other example of this intra-party fighting. So New York, I would say New York was responsible for Democrats losing, oh, yeah. losing the House. Interesting enough, and I was telling someone just a week before, wouldn't it be something that after Election Day, we speak again and we find out that it is because of New York? You would a never, heavily you, blue state. Yeah, you would never have guessed, right? Right. Yeah. And yet here we are. We, I think we lost, what, four, four seats or so, four or five seats. And that's enough. That was enough. So we have one side saying, well, this is Cuomo's fault. So the, the, the hard progressive left, left, right? This is Cuomo's fault because he appointed conservative judges that overturned the redistricting efforts, right, that Democrats pushed in the state legislature. And then we have the more moderate side saying, well, no, this is the progressive left. This is your fault for not taking public safety seriously enough. And where does Richie, story, Richie Torres stand? Somewhere in the middle. It is, I think it is a lonely place to be, but I think it, it is a necessary place to be, especially when we consider the political context. So, yeah, I think Richie Torres is one to watch. Yeah, yeah. I'll agree. <laughs> <laughs> so since you've, you've done us the favor of raising Niebuhr, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to follow up a little bit, not explicitly on Niebuhr, but in addition to your academic work and political work, you've you were also a pastor, and you've also served as, a, as an advisor to numerous elected officials around the country. How do you bring these strands together? How might your work in ministry have come into play or influence or inform your work in the world of politics? Maybe you can even tell us how you came along to doing this in the first place. Yeah. As I reflect on my life, I think it's funny. There, there's a comedic element to this that my vocational life has navigated the religious and political worlds, the two things that you are to never discuss around the dinner table. So I've always found that really funny. I have seen my political work as an extension of my ministry. So I do see it as a ministry because as I understand my Christian faith and what our leader espoused and practiced Jesus, we see a penchant for justice, social justice, right? We see a, to use the term of that, that Gustavo Gutierrez made popular, there is a preferential option for the poor, right? For those that have been marginalized. And in essence, I took that theological principle to heart and asked myself, well, what would that look if we apply it to electoral politics? And that means helping to elect candidates that, by the way, may not be necessarily Christian, but nevertheless, one does not need to be Christian, obviously, to hold certain key values, right? But yeah, what would it mean to help elect folk that also want to champion the cause of the least of these? So in my political work, I gravitated to candidates that had that as their primary passion. And unfortunately, not all were successful, but some were. That's, that goes with the territory. That, that goes with the territory. But nevertheless, I, it's what I aspire to do politically. And again, it was really driven by, by certain theological principles and applying that to our electoral political reality, which is what drove me to practical ministry and parish ministry specifically, because that is, I feel that's another way of really engaging with those that are marginalized, and we must have a preferential option for them. And so for me, I wanted to see how that worked, both 
within parish ministry and electoral politics. Eli, if you could dig a little deeper into that about exactly what might specific communities be looking at, not so much necessarily on the macroeconomic level, but are there more micro issues of concern to them, whether it's housing or food security or access to education or vulnerability of climate change? Are there issues like this that Latino communities are coalescing around or trying to build political energy around? Yes, absolutely. Interestingly enough, education tends to be one issue that always comes up as a key concern for Latinos more broadly. And when we look at the Latino reality in the United States, we see that Latinos find themselves in neighborhoods and communities where there's a lack of the necessary resources to help Latino children succeed. So education comes up either as a second or third most important issue, and we can see why. And it's a real concern. If we look at the, the grading reports, right, that even in New York, for instance, the grading reports that we see the State Department put out, we see that Latino children, for the most part, a well over half, are not reading at grade level. So that is a key issue. The affordability of housing is another key issue. We're here in New York. We're seeing this play out. I really don't know how... And this is not just a Latino issue, but obviously it is impacting Latinos, perhaps in greater numbers. I just, I don't see how families are able to sustain themselves. When we look at the cost of living, which is largely driven by um, housing costs, families have to spend more than half of their income just to have a roof over their head. Here's another alarming fact. One out of every four children in New York City, this is so New York City, the supposed financial capital of the world, one out of four children go to bed hungry at night. This is a fact. And almost half of those children are Latinos. What we find, and I saw this in my, my own parishes, what we find is children that go to school and they go for breakfast and for lunch, they make sure they eat their breakfast, but they save their lunch. Why are you doing this? They would save their lunches because they had, they had no food after school to eat or very little. And again, from the 25% of children that find themselves in that situation in New York City, a good chunk of that are Latinos. And another portion of that 25%, they live in shelters in New York City. So... This is why these issues tend to be really high on Latino matters of concern because they're living this reality. So, and that's very real. That is very real. You've written in some of your academic work about developing what you call a political, pastoral, theological agenda. And I think you originally applied this specifically to how Puerto Rico might recover from Hurricane Maria in 2019. Maybe you could speak a little more about your aims and intents, not only in regard to post Maria Puerto Rico, but also in terms of other political efforts locally, nationally? Yeah. I think for some years, and this is a, definitely a long-term project, and what I, I'm still trying to do is to figure out if we can construct a political theology that speaks to our moment, but a Christian political theology. I mean, I, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I know that gets a little bit, it can get messy when we look at the 
religious diversity in this country, which is a great thing. Well, I'm trying to work out what a Christian political theology may look like. And I'm trying to answer this question. What do we make of Jesus' commandment of loving your neighbor? And what does that mean politically? And we can apply that to so many things, right? And so many issues. What does that mean when we consider immigrant communities? What does that mean when it comes to a woman's right to choose, right? What does that mean when we consider economic policies in this country that seem to favor some and not others or not or the majority, right? So, so I, yeah, I'm seeking to answer that question and construct a political theology that responds to that question. So, yeah, what does loving your neighbor mean larger political sense, but also electorally? What does it mean when it comes to, and not just supporting certain policy positions, but also what does it mean when it comes to supporting certain candidates? That's what I'm trying to work out. Well, great. And you say it may take a long time, but I'm hopeful it happens for you and maybe for the rest of us. So <laughs> thank thanks. you. Thank you. Eli Valentin, thanks so much for being with us at the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode with Eli Valentin. And though you may have been listening before or during Thanksgiving, we've also just put the finishing touches on the December issue of Commonweal Magazine, which is every year includes our traditional Christmas critics selections. We also have features on Dante from Dennis Turner and on Nicaragua from Santiago Ramos, as well as columns by Susan Bigelow Reynolds and Rita Ferrone. Look for the December issue on our website and in your mailbox soon. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>